Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, before I get into too far into Genesis, a quick announcement um, or a reminder. In about three weeks, we're going to be going to Macedonia. There's about seven of us going. It's going to be a, going to be a great trip. We'll be there for about two weeks. Uh, we relate to a church there um, called Glasnost, and that relationship started out as a conversation between uh, me and a, um, a, one of our members of our church named Gotse. And he is actually no longer a member of our church because he has moved back to Macedonia. Um, but he moved back there, him and his family, uh, this last, last summer to help support his brother's church, which is the one we are going to partner with. And um, we also will be partnering with another church while we're there called 490 Church, which is located in kind of a suburb of the capital city. So the capital skitty, skitty, city is Skopje. And right outside of it is this little suburb called Shutka. And Shutka is extremely impoverished. And so it's really difficult for people to break out of that, particularly with the amount of prejudice that has to do with the people that are there. People commonly just assume they are all thieves and liars. And so when everybody assumes you're a thief and a liar just because you come from this region and this people group, how do you break out of that? And so we're going to support the people that are there. Um, there is a church there, 490 Church, and they operate a preschool that helps 20 families year-round just having care for their children. Um, and the children that actually make it through this entire preschool program have, it's, it's astronomical the amount of success they have in comparison to those that don't actually make it through. Um, and that preschool is completely uh, supported by two or three churches in Northern Europe. Uh, but it, all it does is support the staff to operate it. So anytime anything breaks, anytime you need any upgrades, it has to come from churches that are coming alongside to partner with them, kind of like we're doing. And so we'll be going there and helping build a playground in the backyard of that preschool area. And so that'll take up a big chunk of our, our week while we're there in between. And then the partnership time that we'll be having with Glasnost is we're going to help them put on a marriage ministry event um, to actually have a seminar for their married couples because they've lacked um, mostly people resources because a lot of the burden falls on the two elders that are there and they can only manage so much for a small church body. So we want to be able to help and support them and encourage them from around the world. And it's this idea that the church is a global church. Amen. It's not just this church and that church, but we are a global church. We are all children of God. We're banded together and we're going to the nations together. And so I would just ask that as we go out on this, you would uh, support us with your prayers, um, to be praying for travel going smoothly, no complications, no layovers, no planes touching down where they shouldn't be. Um, and just everything in that goes well. Please be praying against any sort of sicknesses. There's nothing that derails a trip quite like getting a bad cold while you're on it. Um, so just be praying for health and be praying that relationships are built up and strengthened and people are encouraged through this time. Um, while we're there, if you, if you feel called to partner in this in some way and you felt you weren't able to actually come on the trip this year or you want to come the next time around but you still want to partner with us, um, prayer is the first and foremost thing. Beyond that, if you want to send finances to go towards this building project that we're going to be doing, um, 
there's, we have different layers of what we'll be able to accomplish compared to what we'll be able to bring. Um, and so that's not an idea of throwing guilt on anybody or trying to coerce into giving an offering. It's simply a reminder if God is prompting you to do something, to be responsive to that. And if he's not, do, don't feel any sort of guilt or condemnation, but these are the different ways that we can partner with each other around the world. Because sometimes we are going to be able to go because my, my preferred method of everybody partnering would be for you all to come with me. That would be the best. Um, but in the absence of that, there are different ways in which we can partner together. Some are financial, some are in prayers. Um, I'm hoping to have a couple other things in the next few weeks where we're going to ideally send some gifts along the way. And so there's just different methods we can do that. Um, but we'll be going to Macedonia in a couple weeks. It'll be a very exciting time. So to continue in Genesis, to continue and end. Genesis. We have come to the end. Um, we began this journey through Genesis on October 3rd, 2022. So it's almost a year precisely from start to finish to get here. It's been quite a journey. Um, and it felt very fitting to talk about the overall message that Genesis brings us and the whole reason um, why we have Genesis in the first place. When we look at Genesis, the very first line of Genesis 1-1 is, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, it was God. Throughout all history, it is God. To eternity, it is God. This story is God's story. We have the wonderful privilege of being a part of God's great story. When we look at Genesis 2, 4, that describes what this is all, what is all happening. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made them, the earth and the heavens. Everything from this point forth is the story of God's partnership with his creation. His invitation to be a part of what he is doing. Everything that comes after that is the description of God wanting to be with his people, with his creation, for us to enjoy it with him. It's a with that God is trying to communicate to all of humanity. Not us and him or his way, but us coming together and us working with God Almighty. It's just such a wonderful thing that we get to be a part of and that we get to see his plans and purposes come to pass throughout the entirety of it. And this has been preserved for us for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And we, it would be very natural to ask the question, why has this been so painstakingly preserved in its accuracy? There's a lot of things out there where they talk about things have been changed over the years or modified or mistakes have been made. If you look into the painstaking methods of copying over the scriptures, you would know that that is not the case that they would copy, they don't copy line by line, they copy letter by letter when they were um, transcribing it from an old scroll to a new scroll. The scribes would take this, it would be a very slow, painstaking process because they did not want to alter or mess up a single word. And so we have that great heritage carried over to us that we might know, that we might see it as it was intended to be communicated to all of mankind when we read through Genesis. And Genesis specifically is the book of beginnings. It is the, where everything comes from. Every major theme of scripture begins in Genesis. All the red threads that we've talked about these, this last year that weave its way through the tapestry that is God's word to mankind. It all begins here. 
And a very important thing that's going to highlight this very message today is the fact that all things change. All things come to an end. Every season has its beginning, and every season has its end. In order to begin a new chapter, we have to be able to close the one that had come before. And so we're going to talk about this in length today. So Genesis 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. That is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. And so when we look at this, the very beginning of this is describing uh, Jacob has just passed away and Joseph falls upon his father's face and weeps. And so the very first thing from this is this this question, this inquiry. um, Why do we weep when someone dies? Why do we feel sorrow? Why do we feel grief? Why do we have these immense, overwhelming emotions when someone passes. And I do believe it's, it's meant to be there that way so that we understand fully that death is not meant to be. Death is not something that God desired for humanity. It's a part of the curse. We look back at Genesis 3. It says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Wasn't God's original desire for us? He wanted us to live eternally in the garden with Him, to be with Him forever. And through our choices, this has now come about. And it's an opportunity for us to feel the full gravity of that when someone we hold so dear passes into eternity. That loss should be palpable. The sorrow is natural and expected. There's no reason you should ever shove those feelings down, push them aside, not feel them in their fullest. It is necessary to grieve. It is healthy for you to grieve and to understand why to appreciate the wonderful and amazing time you had while you had it, to be grateful for it, to be able to move through it. Because no matter how much we want to hold on to it, no matter how much we want it to not be true, that person is not coming back until the day of Jesus' return and he raises us up again. And we have to be able to accept that. We have to be able to move through that. And we're not going to unless we give ourselves the opportunity to grieve. It is healthy and good 
to do so. It is painful, but it's healthy for you to not push it down or away and to be able to be supportive and encouraging of those that are going through that process as they go through transitioning through this season. Nobody wants that season to come. Nobody wants someone to pass away that they hold dearly. But for all of us, that will happen. And we must understand that someone going through grieving, it's not a straight line that you can tick off the boxes and the days and say, okay, you should be done now. It's a different process for anybody, and it's often a much longer process than we would expect. That initially grieving, that real intense grieving, it doesn't necessarily happen right away. It's shock at first. The reality hasn't set in. But within a couple of weeks, it begins to come upon you that this person isn't coming back. And you start moving that. You start feeling the gravity of that. And maybe after a few months, you start working through it, start operating within it, start getting back to normal routines. But it's very, very common, right about six months, to feel the full gravity of all of those emotions all over again. And we, as those that are not walking through it, it's good for us to be supportive during that time and not questioning them during that time of what's wrong with you. I thought we moved past with this. You need to pull yourself together. That's not helpful. When they get to that stage, you need to be encouraging. You need to walk beside them. You need to be working with them through that. They aren't controlling those feelings that they're coming. They have to walk through it still, though. And then beyond that, what's going to be difficult is going to be anniversaries. Anniversaries of marriages, anniversaries of births, anniversaries of deaths. Those are times that we do not want to leave those people alone. Make sure that they are surrounded and cared for and considered and reached out to because they're not going to choose the welling up of those emotions. But it will be so much helpful, more helpful to them to be able to continue moving well through this season, through those emotions when they're surrounded by people that love and support and encourage them. And don't constantly tell them, shouldn't you be over this by now? It allows them to move forward and move on when they have loving and supporting people around them. And so that's actually what we see here happening with the Egyptians. 40 days of embalming, 70 days of weeping. A mourning process of 70 days. It wasn't a couple days, okay, everybody back to work. They stood beside the family. They wept for 70 days days before they headed up to the process of bringing him up to the land of Canaan. The Egyptians themselves, they're not close to Jacob. He's not their father. He's Joseph's father. But they support and love Joseph. They are for him, and so they are going to walk through this with him. And in that, all of them went up with him to the land of Canaan. This would not have been a short journey. This is months that everyone's going to give up to walk alongside and be with them through this most difficult time. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. 
When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning of their threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Misraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham brought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So the naming of this place, Abel Mizraim. So when Abel is the name of a place, it often can either mean morning or meadow. And Mizraim is actually the Hebrew word for Egypt. So when it talks about when back in Genesis 10, all the nations being born out there, it says, it, doesn't, it does not say in Hebrew, he begat Egypt. It says he begat Mizraim. So this meaning of this place is Egypt's mourning. And we see at this point, Jacob's story is finally at an end. He won't have any part to play after this. He will be remembered. He'll be alluded to. He'll be considered a forefather for all of Israel. But his time is at an end. He won't get to play any more parts after this. And he began as a heel grabber. Out of Genesis 25, afterwards his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. The idea of a heel grabber is one who causes someone else to stumble. He's shrewd. He's mischievous. He's clever. He's getting the better of you. It's not, a, it's not actually a very flattering name. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man in the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. He was someone that quiet often means peaceful, someone who didn't have a whole lot of confrontation. He's not coming up directly opposing. He's subtle, and he's for himself. But it isn't how he ended. We see later on in his life that he becomes Israel, one who wrestles with man and God and prevails. And to wrestle with God doesn't mean you're going to be winning over God as you've beaten him. It's the idea that you've clung so dearly onto God and you wouldn't let go. That moment at Peniel where he grabs on to God as he's wrestling through the evening and he won't let him go until he's blessed. I will cling to you with everything I have. That is prevailing with the Lord, not over the Lord, with God. It's the story of a transformed spirit, of a transformed life, of someone who was made anew. And it is not limited by anyone's age or background or experience. It is not limited by anything. Israel was in his 90s when this happened. It's never too late to be changed by the Lord. You are never at a spot where God is done with you. Your time has passed. Seasons change, but God still works through each and every one of them, different than the one that came before. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. 
His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's not clear if that, that command that they said their father gave actually happened or not. It seems to be implied that it's a little bit of a lie, but it's not quite clear. But it is clear that they, they're hoping not to have any harsh consequences for the past. It was interesting as I read through this, why now? It's been 17 years since they came into Egypt with him. 17 years that any of this could happen. Why suddenly now, with Jacob passing, is this a concern? And to, go, to give us a little bit of perspective, we need to actually look back to Genesis 27, when Jacob himself deceived and stole the blessing from his brother. And it says this, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning of my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother. So there's this idea, this uh, preconceived notion that Joseph only held back his hand for the sake of his father. That, he didn't, that out of respect for his dad, he didn't punish his brother so he wouldn't have to see that. But now that dad's finally passed, now the hammer's going to come down upon us. And so they're hoping in some way to avoid that. And what's interesting is he responds again and consistently in a way that they don't expect. He, can, he responds as one who truly understands what God has done in all of our lives. And when he says that, am I in the place of God to do this, he means it. He means this reality of, I'm not the one to judge you. I'm not the one to condemn you. I know where you were, but I know that God had different purposes in mind. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And with those words, we have the birth of an entire theology surrounding this, which is further flushed out in Romans 8, actually. And it's I think we've used it a lot of times to try to make people feel better, but I don't think we've always used it well. And so the, the phrase comes from Romans 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God and all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And so oftentimes we want to tell somebody this, that have just gone through this horrific event in their life, or they're going through something really difficult or tragic, and we want to say, hey, God uses all things for good for those that love him. And this idea that somehow this is just going to be turned around and it's going to be really great. The sun will come out tomorrow. It's your bottom dollar tomorrow. And that's the message we want to give because we are uncomfortable with their grief. We are uncomfortable with how they are feeling, with their sorrow, with their weeping, with their gnashing of teeth. We want you to feel better. But that's not always healthy to do nor truthful. We have to consider that that statement, the sun will come out tomorrow, will not always happen. And I would present for you all of the apostles, people who fervently loved the Lord, 
passionate for him, lived every last breath for God and every last one, but John was martyred and not for lack of trying. This idea that somehow tomorrow all will be solved and this will all come together and you'll see the magic of this isn't truthful. God can redeem each and every moment for our good, though. And it's essential to understand the entire passage to see what's actually being alluded to here. So if we begin back in Romans 8, verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be, will be revealed to us. This idea of first we have to grasp perspective, that the sufferings now will be bad. And he's going to elaborate a whole lot on how bad it can be. But to keep our eyes on the glory that is to come, not in this life, but the next with God. The sufferings of this time, it's, it's not even worth comparing. It's bad. But there's so much better to come. And then we hit that verse 28. All things are going to work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. But don't close your Bible at that verse and go, okay, I like it. You must read verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That conformity to his image is your sanctification. In that through anything you experience, the most difficult things of this life, there may not be something on this side of eternity that we can say, oh, well, you'll have this great ministry, or oh, you're going to be like Joseph, you're going to save the whole world because of this. That may never happen, but will happen in each one of these events. God can use it to help sanctify you, help make you become a little bit more in his likeness, help show you how to love the world in a better way, and that is enough. It doesn't often help us feel better about that situation because oftentimes that situation should never have happened. It's because of the evil and the corruption and the sin that's in this world. And we don't want to diminish that in someone's life by saying, hey, all things work together for good, trying to somehow put a shine on this moment. It was a bad, horrific, terrible moment. Let them have that. Don't let your discomfort with them walking through that prevent the reality of that from sinking in. We want to help someone walk through that, not by giving them a hopeful lie that sounds good. But we can encourage them in that we can still move forward. I am still with you. I will walk through you through this. I have, I have not experienced your pain. I won't diminish it. But I know that God will help shape you through this thing that should have never happened to you. And I will continue to walk through, you, through this with you as long as you need. Amen. So Joseph remained in Egypt in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. 
And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph died at the age of 110 years old, living most of his life in Egypt. And just an interesting fun fact for you, apparently in ancient Egypt, 110 years was the ideal time to die. I tried for a while to look into why that's the case, and I could find nothing. And yet, that is the time he died. It mentions his grandson, Machir, the son of Manasseh, and out of this particular lineage, it's fairly prestigious in the line of Joseph. They do great things in the conquest. They do great things in the time of Judges in bringing things for Israel. We see that in Numbers 32 and Judges 5. And then Joseph ends with this prophetic statement about the future to come, that God will surely visit you and he will bring you into this land. And it's, it sounds like a hopeful statement, but there is actually a very prophetic nature to it. And so we're going to take a little walk through our history, their future of how this comes about, because they're going to go through 400 years of slavery. A new king is going to arise in Egypt, and he's not going to trust the Israelites, and he's going to put them to forced labor and add burdens and burdens upon them, and they're going to cry out to the Lord. Out of Exodus 2, it said, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. And so he raises up Moses and he brings him to Pharaoh and he tells him to let them go. And Pharaoh is hardened and he doesn't want to listen and he doesn't want to bend his knee to the Lord. And so then the plagues come upon them and finally he does let the people go. They go and cross the Red Sea. The Egyptians decide to change their mind. They chase them back and the Red Sea collapses on top of the Egyptians. In Exodus 14, it says, thus the Lord saved Israel from that Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the, the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and His servant Moses. They believed Him, but they didn't want to obey. They became stubborn and stiff-necked and a difficult people, and their hearts wandered so easily away, and so that entire generation needed to wander in the desert for 40 years so that a new generation that could be fervent and passionate and fully for God could arise and could go forth and take the land and be his people. And so in Deuteronomy 31, Moses commissions the next generation. He summons Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to the fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It, shall, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And Joshua does just that. He is not fearful. He is not dismayed. He is passionate after God. He is empowered by the Lord, and he leads the people into the land. And they take a great deal of it before Joshua's time himself is finally done. And in Joshua 24, it says, After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnah Surah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. 
Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel had brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Joseph's story is now at an end. In each and every one of these people's lives, they played a part in the story. But eventually, they all come to an end. The very first thing we need to realize from this passage is that everything ends. Every relationship we have on this earth will end. The job you have, eventually you won't anymore. That will end. The children you have, they will grow up. That time will end. Those that we hold dear, they will pass into eternity. All the stuff we have will go to someone else. Everything on this earth will end. Whether Jesus comes back tomorrow, today, a thousand years from now, everything here will end before God makes it anew. We don't control that. It's going to happen. Every season in life ends, but with it, a new season begins. The one thing we do control is how we respond when these things do happen. Out of Ecclesiastes 3, it says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under, the sun, under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build. And he goes on of this for a while to really try to hit the point home to us that there is a time and a season for everything. And then in verse 11, he says, Everything has been made beautiful in its own time. When we cling so fervently to the season that we're in and we don't want it to pass when that time comes and we try to drag it on and drag it on, we diminish the beauty of what it was. It was a wonderful beautiful, amazing season, but we can't let that one season define who we were. And there might be a process of mourning to move through it, but a new season has come. The story needs to continue on, but it's going to change. Each and every one of us, we don't get the whole story. We're a little piece of the story that God's been carrying on through generation after generation after generation for thousands and thousands of years. And it might be in this generation that he comes back, and it might not be for another thousand years. But what is important, as we pass from the current season to the next one, that we do that well. And when we're in, coming out of the season of doing the mighty work, that we pass on what we've learned. That we pass it on to the next generation so that they can do well and mightily, just as you have. At a second Timothy 2, it says, You then, my child, be strengthened 
by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul knew he wasn't going to be around forever. He knew his time was limited. We need to keep this going as much as we can until Jesus comes back so that we continue these mighty things that God is doing through his servants on this earth. And how much better can we do if we pass on what we've learned, the truth that we've been given to build upon the foundation that we have in Christ as we're building up our faith and our lives in the kingdom of God, how much better it is to pass that on to someone else than say, hey, I figured it out, you figure it out. To understand that the next season can often be a different sort of blessing. It can often be a time of rest and change and bringing up the next generation to realize that it's time to put the tools down and let someone else carry them. To realize, as hard as it may be, we're getting old. And that often means there's less we can do. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is fighting it. As opposed to stepping into the next season and saying, you know, Lord, I really appreciate the season you gave me. Everything I was able to do, it was such a blessing. I, I appreciate the opportunity you gave me to learn from someone else who invested in me, to be able to step into this ministry and do it well, and now this opportunity for me to pass it on to another and to encourage them to do well and to be able to have this much-needed break that I had no idea I actually needed and to embrace the next season to come. So you've got to realize it's not my story and it's not your story. The start to finish is not our life. It's still going to continue along until God's purposes are fully fulfilled because what we saw at the beginning is that this whole thing is God's story. And His will will surely come to pass. In the very beginning, Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and it was a good thing. And who else is upset that he screwed it up? It was a good thing, but it didn't last, and we needed to find a way back to what was. And so in Genesis 3, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the deceiver, the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. You will be defeated I will bring my people back into right relationship with me and it will not be a short journey. And there will be a lot of lessons along the way that need to be learned first. But there will be a way and I will bring my purposes about and all the earth shall return to me, the ones that have called me, the ones that have chose me. And in Genesis 12, it says, I will bless those who bless you and him, him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God chose a people to be called by his name. He chose to bless the whole earth through them and through Abraham's line. And through that line, we have Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who did indeed come to this earth, who fulfilled that message to us at the very beginning, who made a way to have right relationship with God once again, to bridge the gap for every single human being that would call upon him as Lord and Savior to have relationship once more, to taste of life forevermore with the Lord. And for all that do so, 
to finally see Revelation 22 come to pass. Then the angel showed me the river of, life, of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The end. 